Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson, and I'm your host, and today is July 29th, 2021. Today's podcast is the first of a three-part series focused on ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance. Participants in today's podcast include Navy Captain and NASA astronaut Wendy Lawrence, our head of ESG, Michael Rodriguez, our head of macro strategy, Peter Chir, and Rachel Washburn, our head of geopolitical intelligence. Today, we will be discussing how space exploration provides perspective and plays a role in environmental sustainability. We'll also discuss best practices in supporting environmental initiatives that are impactful, whether that be from the viewpoint of corporations, issuers, or investors. We discuss ways in which environmental sustainability finance impacts the markets And lastly, the role of cryptocurrency plays in ESG. Here's Rachel with a very interesting conversation with the Academy Securities team. Captain Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you part of our ESG discussion, just given your background and your incredibly unique perspective on climate change. And uh, given your background as an astronaut, there's no one better equipped to discuss why climate change, why issues of sustainability are incredibly relevant. Can you discuss why, um, how your experience with NASA has informed your views around climate change? I would be happy to. Uh, first, let me say it was just uh, an absolute privilege to have an opportunity to ride a rocket and orbit the planet because you do see the Earth in a profoundly different way than day-to-day life down here. Uh, we astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts, those of us who've been able to fly in space, and that's fewer than 600 people at this point in time. We see the planet in a way that really impacts us because particularly in the daylight part of the orbit, when the sunlight overwhelms the light of the stars, you see Earth suspended in this intensely deep black void of space. And what's fascinating to me is you can independently ask astronauts, cosmonauts, and taikonauts this question, and we all use the same word to describe our impression of Earth, which is fragile. The Earth looks like it's not able to hold off this void of space. The other impression that is intensely driven into us is this is the only place that we know how to live on. It's our only option And all 8 billion of us are living on this planet together. And we've got to figure out a way to keep our lifeboat afloat collectively. And climate change is a huge issue. Because when you have an opportunity to fly in space over a period of time, you do get to see the profound changes that are occurring on this planet. Deforestation of the rainforest. Changing of the atmosphere. From my first flight to my last flight was 10 years. In that period of time, it was very clear to me that there was much more pollution in the atmosphere. China, in particular, first flight I could see cities in China. Last flight, 10 years later, they were covered by a pall of pollution. So we do have a unique vantage point from which we get to see the man-made impacts on this planet. That's an incredibly powerful image. And in your description, you're talking about how we really are as an entire planet in this together. And as ESG and issues of sustainability have uh, 
become more of a focus. You're seeing a lot of global co- cooperation. And Peter, I want to bring you into this conversation because you you speak to this a lot, uh, where as a country, as businesses are trying to figure out how they can participate in issues around sustainability, how are we doing it the right way? How are we going to not lose a competitive edge and create ESG metrics and frameworks through a business lens? Rachel, I think that's a great question. And I think it even goes back to one of the things Captain Lawrence just said. 10 years ago, you could see Chinese cities from space. Now you can't due to the pollution. So I think we have to be very realistic and figure out a way to ensure that as we're sharing this globe, everyone really not only makes the same commitments, but honors those commitments. I think we have to be very careful that we don't get into a situation where we lose certain competitive advantages, things that are important to us as a nation over time, because not everyone makes the same commitments, takes those same steps we do. So I'm not sure that how that comes, but you know, I keep thinking about trust, but verify. And I think we've learned some lessons over the last 10 to 20 years dealing with various nations that we're going to have to aggressively monitor this, I think, to make sure that it works. Because if everyone else pulls back, but a couple people take advantage of that situation, the earth won't get much better, and yet their competitive situation will occur. And I think domestically, and as we look at our industries, what we're trying to do, I think now that we've identified this problem, and what I really love is that across the nation, across many nations, people really are fixated on what we're doing to our climate. But I also think we have to make sure we do this in a not just a timely manner, but a proper manner. Are we thinking about how this works? Are we getting from point A to point D through B and C in a realistic path? Or are we making unrealistic assumptions from point A to D, which again, put us at a competitive disadvantage, which may cause other problems. So I think how do we make sure that we're addressing this both as a nation and as a globe is the biggest question to me. This is where I see the advantage of Advantage of spaceflight. If more people could see the Earth the way I've seen it, I think it would really impress upon them the need to act collectively. And so, Peter, you've raised some good points. How do you do it in a way where everybody is going to do this collectively, that they're all going to try and put their shoulder to the wheel and push and make progress? Uh, Monitoring is going to be critical, but I think we have to do a better job of impressing upon people the urgency of this situation and how all of us around the globe are going to be affected by the harmful impacts. China's a great example. They just had record flooding over there. So they're seeing the impacts. And hopefully that makes a significant point to them that all of us together have to work collectively. Mike, this is where you come in and where you've been an incredible asset to our clients and partners, advising them on how to engage on issues of sustainability, other ESG metrics. Can you discuss what you're seeing in your seat? Um, what are best practices for our clients? And uh, given your background in academia and sustainability, um, what resources can our clients and partners leverage to make sure they're taking part in this big kind of overwhelming picture um, in a way that is productive and meaningful and, and good for, for their organizations and shareholders? Rachel, that's a great question. Uh, this is an evolving space and lots of attention is being focused on it by a variety of stakeholders. You're right. Best practices and resources. Since at the immediate time, there appears to be no one size fits all approach, uh, focus on what's critical to you as an organization and within your scope of control, then build for impact. 
As far as looking to find what you can control, business materials, business materiality is one way of examining that. The Values Reporting Foundation, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has been a leader in the space there. You can look to combine where they what they see as important from a materiality perspective with the uh, global reporting initiatives concepts for disclosing what is considered ESG metrics to stakeholders and investors. When it comes to building for impact and setting targets, there are resources like the Science-Based Targets Initiative who provide guidance on the decarbonization front. Impact will require companies actually to take a bit more of a robust look at their stakeholders and the environments and communities in which they operate in and where they can facilitate growth and do no further harm. It's more than really just saying we allocated X amount to solar panels. Also, looking to align incentives to stakeholders. There's been a continued momentum of linking executive compensation to ESG performance metrics, um, which is great as it allows corporate leadership the wiggle room to dedicate their expertise and authority as leaders to some of these concerns that maybe was not as much of a focus or possible previously. We've seen this play out a bit in the linked loan and bond space where issuers are now rewarded improved financing costs as long as ESG KPIs and targets are being met. But it's going to be important for those to continue to revisit and adapt to the changing landscape and environment. Again, uh, you have more regulators looking to become more focused on this in the future as well. This is already the case in Europe. Carbon trading markets, drought, water stress, issues of forestry and paper products, new technology, demographics, and population trends will all come into play. And it's, again, important to revisit and see where maybe things can be improved, removed, and possibly added as it relates to sustainability strategy or financing framework. And then find ways to find, ways to find further opportunities, products, or, or processes. Peter, in this discussion, we're really focused on the E in ESG today. Can you discuss your macro view on how green technology, green initiatives uh, will broadly impact the economy and how people should be considering it? Yeah, I think it is very evolutionary for the economy. I think it's going to create great opportunities for you know companies that embrace it. You've already seen some companies that have come out of nowhere in terms of market cap who figured this out. I do think that Part of this is going to be somewhat inflationary, and it's something, you know, the Fed has been looking to create inflation. And why I think that is, I think there are going to be steps to either creating environmentally sustainable products or processes. So as companies look to do that, they are, I think, going to spend money. I think they're going to find that if they have a process that's sustainable or a product that is sustainable, they're able to pass the bulk of those costs on to the consumer because the consumer really, really does want to see that in products and processes. And even if they don't make quite as much money maybe as before, they are going to be rewarded in terms of share price because there is so much demand from investors that you can get paid a higher multiple if you're a sustainable client. I think the one thing that companies might be a little bit behind on, and I think they really need to focus on, is getting ahead of the curve as people look at your supply chains, right? It's not just going to be what you do, it's what do your suppliers do. And I think that's not being addressed enough, but I think there's going to be intense scrutiny from investors on what your supply chains look like. And if your supply chains are doing things like polluting or treating their workers in a way that we wouldn't be comfortable here, I think that's going to bring pressure on your company. So I think that's going to lead to one of two things. 
a little bit of inflationary pressures as some of these other countries catch up to us, which would be a good way to almost have the markets enforce some of this commitment. Or companies are going to be bringing back jobs to regions that are committed to this. So whether it's you know North America, whether it's Europe. So I think there's going to be this opportunity for job growth. So I think it's going to be really exciting. And getting ahead of this, identifying it, is going to lead to real profit opportunities for companies, as well as becoming very sustainable in terms of a product or a process. Thanks, Peter. And Mike, we hear a lot from uh, different companies and organizations about having goals and ambitions of becoming net zero based off a certain timeline. What does that actually look like? Is that feasible? And what should people be considering um, as people try to reach these goals? Rachel, thanks. You mentioned, you know, timelines, goals, ambitions, and net zero. So I think it's important really, you know, um, let's take a look at what net zero means and uh, maybe those timelines as well. And when we're talking about net zero, it's a, you know, we're really just talking about balancing emissions with, with that are emitted with those that we're attempting to try and remove. Uh, the key dates and timelines we're, we're discussing are primarily 2030 and 2050. And have, having emissions or 50% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and ideally net zero by 2050 to stay within this 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius increase range. This will require you know, a lot of growth in alternative energy, decarbonization technologies and services, practices, and also a, a huge focus on forestry. Uh, technology is, of course, one of the key drivers of the IPCC's climate analysis. Renewable, renewable energy will be a, a key player in that as well, um, as well as maybe carbon capture um, should it become more cost effective. Forest growth is also one of the key components and just want to focus on briefly right here as right now the Amazon emits more greenhouse gases than it absorbs. It's critical as a carbon sink and I think also is highlighted, um, highlights even some of the geopolitical components that come into play when we're talking about decarbonization, climate change, forestry, and supply chains and the like. Peter mentioned supply chains. I think organizations are really going to have to look at how they integrate these concerns. So whether that's renewables purchase and greenhouse gases avoided or uh, forestry or paper products, even water stress and management, they're going to have to look at how these are incorporated in their operations, supply chain and manufacturing processes. But in order to, to get net zero, you know, it's a, a, important to sort of look at those at the timelines of 2030 and 2050, as well as the technology and processes that are needed to get you there. Something you said there that I think is a great transition to Captain Lawrence, you talked about leveraging technology to find these solutions. Historically, uh, the NASA and um, space exploration has been a huge driver in emerging technologies, some kind of pedestrian and mundane, some unbelievably mind-blowing. So, Captain Lawrence, maybe you can discuss like what the role that space um, plays in managing climate change um, broadly and uh, you know, specifically. Well, I go back to something I said before. Awareness is one. If we can get more <clears throat> of the decision makers to see the planet from the perspective that we space flyers have been able to see, I think it just makes a tremendous impact on you. But specifically, technology. So since the late 1960s, there's been this idea of using uh, space-based, you know, power generation. So basically, 
similarly what we do on board the International Space Station, you've got solar rays, you capture the sunlight, but the next step is to transform that into maybe um, microwave or laser energy and beam it down to the Earth. Is that feasible? From a technology standpoint, yes, we know how to do that. The next step, though, is can you make it affordable? And so I think that's the challenge. But back to market opportunities and growth opportunities for companies. I think this is something that people in the United States need to start paying more attention to. Maybe push for more government investment initially. China is already committed to space-based power generation. They're beginning to develop satellites to generate a, maybe 100 kilowatts and then maybe a megawatt of power and beam it down to the Earth. This could be yet another area in which the United States is left behind because we haven't been paying attention to it. But I think there is potential. That's probably, for me, the best application I can think of space is seeing if we can take advantage of solar power, not just on the surface, but capture it up in space and beam it down in a different form of power. Just wanted to add, I think that's a great point, especially when we can get government intervention or government support in the right way, whether it's subsidizing companies' research or taking on bigger projects themselves. You know, again, we're at such a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment where maybe companies can't afford to make those right decisions necessarily, but with the right government incentives or large government projects, I think it can go on. And this part about space is just fascinating given how much we've heard in the past two weeks about the first, you know, public um, flights to space the direction we're headed, that's just another frontier that I think we all need to be thinking about what are the opportunities both to help the economy um, and help the you know, ecology of this planet, but how can you know companies make money from this? And all those opportunities seem to present themselves there, with especially with a bit of government help. Yeah, the government role. Traditionally, government has been in the role of funding the basic research um, to do the risk assessment. Is this technology even going to be viable? So, I, yeah, there definitely is a role for government to play in some of this upfront basic research just to prove the, the feasibility of this concept. And at some point, um, do what NASA is doing right now with the development of low-Earth or- orbit, commercialization of low-Earth orbit. Provide opportunities for companies to meet service demands that NASA has. So there is definitely a role for government to play in this. In terms of uh, space, Captain Lawrence, you you mentioned perspective, and one of the the jobs I often, as part of the ESG, is dealing with lots of data, and I find find space as essential in that that data collection and intelligence gathering process. And what I mean by that is we now have the capability very much to to track in real time the things you mentioned, such as increased urbanization and encroachment air pollution, Arctic ice melt, and deforestation, just also the technology to assess where might be the best places to put solar panels or uh, wind farms and plan out uh, the infrastructure that's going to be needed to adapt to climate change. Um, of course, there are phenomenal opportunities in energy, other resources, but as a place to find perspective and information and to make the decisions, space seems that it has the most ability and immediate impactful as a information, as a place to gather information in the decision-making pro- and the decisions that we're trying to make today when it relates to sustainability. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the Earth observation satellites, even just the astronauts on the space station being able to 
fly a repeating pattern over the Earth and, and take pictures. I mean, we've got 60 years of pictures now that astronauts have taken of the planet, so we can track the deforestation of the Amazon. We can track the loss of water levels in, a, in an area like Lake Chad. We can track land use patterns, good land use patterns and detrimental land use patterns. But you're right, it's very challenging to make a good decision when you have not enough data. Not enough data leads to uninformed decisions and uninformed consequences. So yes, that's a very significant role that space plays. Peter, where there's lots of focus around cryptocurrencies, it's going to be something we're talking about in our cyber podcast, in our social podcast, something we've discussed many times in our geopolitical focused podcast. What is your view around the ascendance and focus on cryptocurrencies from a green perspective? So I'll give a little bit what I hear of both sides of the story. The proponents who believe that crypto is okay from an energy perspective bring up two things. Crypto mining can be done anywhere, so you can bring the mining to where energy, especially green energy, is available, or maybe it's wasted energy, natural gas that's being burnt off in fields because it can't be transported. So that element makes some sense where normally you have to bring the energy to where the demand is and crypto mining you can take it to there so that gives it some possibility to be more green than it would be otherwise or just to capture energy that currently is being wasted the other part of the story i hear behind crypto being green for energy is the amount of money being made by these crypto miners incentivizes them to develop new sources of energy so crypto in itself would be really helping speed the development of green energy sources. So those are the arguments that I hear consistently, and I buy into it a little bit. Having said that, ultimately we only have a certain amount of energy that we're producing. So if you're using green energy to mine crypto, much of that green energy could be used elsewhere and maybe reduce our carbon. I feel sometimes as things become focused, so when all of a sudden Elon Musk talked about greenness of crypto mining everyone focused on it and people were shifting resources but some of this peter robbing paul to pay mary so you don't mine it with coal you mine it with green but someone else picks up the use of that coal fired plant so it's a little bit intellectually dishonest i think we'd probably be better off without crypto from an environmental standpoint and that is going to be something that we have to watch and people are going to have to decide how much of this energy is worthwhile spending to you know pursue cryptocurrency when it's unclear whether it serves a lot of the benefits that people have talked about. So uh, I would lean towards that it's a negative for the environment and it's going to be difficult to do anything about it so long as crypto remains popular because it will create these energy demands. Captain Lawrence, in terms of, you know, one of the, the things that we try and do here is just help out, you know, help out folks understand, navigate the, the space, especially it's obviously growing. I guess as folks look to to really build out their own models, scenarios for how their businesses are looking to maybe adapt or become more resilient in the face of climate change, where might they be able to go to from your experience, whether it's NASA, NOAA, or the USGS, maybe perhaps other organizations that you know produce information or content that would be helpful to them? in that decision-making and model creation process. Is there anything that comes to mind to you that, you know, whether they're public entities, 
private corporations or just broader stakeholders can can go to for this for these sort of information and resources that they try and plan for this? Well, certainly government agencies are important. Uh, I would add to that the European Space Agencies, their Copernicus um, series of satellites are for Earth observation, and NASA and European Space Agency just signed a climate agreement to work, continue to work together to share data and make data repositories available to people. So I wouldn't uh, look just to the United States. I'd go overseas as well. And again, European Space Agency, I think, is an important source. Um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, I would add into that. They just released a study yesterday about the health of rainforests around the world. And the Amazon is, um, they listed as number one concern because it's not very resilient. So your comment about supply chain concerns and where you may be doing your forestry work. Um, some rainforests are better able to handle it, like the Congo Basin, but other rainforests over in Asia, the land use, the human land use choices are having a significant impact. So the data is out there. I would start with some of the government agencies that are tasked with Earth observation. So as you mentioned, NASA, NOAA, USGS, and then we'll get other space agencies as well, like European Space Agency. Thank you, Captain Lawrence. Michael, Peter, and Rachel for an interesting conversation around ESG. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time to listen today. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you would like to engage with our ESG, macro strategy, or geopolitical intelligence group directly, please reach us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.